Now we move on to the last of our series, finally, called Seven, uh, the letters to the seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation. Today we're on the church at Laodicea, and I feel like now that I'm at this last message, I, I've felt some apprehension because for the last while I haven't, I've just always known what I'm going to preach about, and uh, I feel like someone's moving out of the house, and I've got to figure out uh, what's going to happen next, but nonetheless, we're going to do this one here, the last the last church, the church at Laodicea. I'm just going to read the letter to you, uh, verses 14 to 21, and then, or 22, I should say, and then we will uh, get into it. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, to the churches. And so this is the letter to the church at Laodicea. And just like the one two weeks ago, we talked about the letter to the church at Sardis. And just like with Sardis, uh, this letter is all rebuke. Okay, there's no... There's not, Jesus has no encouragement for this church, okay? And so there's a number of parallels with this church with the one we looked at two weeks ago. Just like with Sardis, the city of Laodicea was a very wealthy city, and they were known to be wealthy. They were a banking center uh, for the area, and uh, some well-known Roman officials took out huge loans from the Laodiceans, so it was a very wealthy place. Also, it's, uh, no, no uh, mention of persecution is made in the letter. So just like with Sardis, we have this picture of a church that is in a very prosperous community and there's no persecution to speak of. So we have this picture of a church that is uh, very comfortable and, and well off. And then we have this very, again, rebuke. Now, I want to say one thing before we, we get into this here. So we've looked at these letters. Most of the churches in these letters we saw there was, there was persecution. And some of the churches that did the best were the ones that were in persecution. And then, of course, we see Sardis and Laodicea, the two that didn't have persecution, uh, they were, you know, they were really bad off, heart-wise in just every which way. And one thing I, I want to say is, uh, sometimes we get almost this subconscious idea that if a church isn't persecuted, it's just automatically doomed to be apathetic and worldly and all that sort of stuff. And I want you to notice, Jesus calls these people to repent, okay? You don't, it, we're not doomed. There's not, this is not fatalism. Some Christians have this fatalistic idea that no persecution means, you know, lukewarm, pathetic church. And that does not have to be true. You can be in a place where there's no persecution, and you can be on fire for Jesus. And Jesus actually expects that of us. And I want you to keep that mindset in, in, in view through, throughout this message, okay? I want to get past that subconscious feeling that here in Canada, we don't have persecution, so we're just like Laodicea automatically, and we're just doomed to be apathetic. We're not doomed to anything. It's our choices that Jesus is after. It's our hearts he's after, and we can be zealous for him, okay? Or he wouldn't ask us to do that. So keep that in mind as we go through this. I want to go back to the introduction here because in the, this is one of my favorite introductions of all the, uh, 
letters to the churches. Jesus calls himself something very interesting here. If we go back to verse 14, and the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen. And I just love that introduction, the words of the amen. Jesus says, I am the amen. And uh, I had to take out a few passages here because we don't have time to go through them all. Um, but any of the Jewish uh, believers who would have been in this church listening to this, they would have, the moment Jesus says, I'm the amen, they would have been thinking back to Isaiah 65, verse 16, where God said, I am the God of the amen. And in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul says about Jesus, he says, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Okay, and so what does that mean, Jesus is the amen? What does it mean Jesus is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises, all right? Well, in the Old Testament, God made many promises, okay? He made a pro- there was a promise of a Messiah uh, to save his people. There was a promise of the forgiveness of sins, amazingly, like not just through animals, temporary, but there was the promise of this permanent forgiveness of sins that God wanted to do. There was a promise of heaven and eternal life, and, and resurrection, God made some incredible promises in the Old Testament, okay? Awesome promises that we could live forever and, and, and not be corrupted and not sin anymore and be forgiven and, and just amazing promises. But the thing is, none of those promises which God made, none of those promises which God made starting in Genesis chapter 3 could have come true unless Jesus would have condescended to come down and be born as a human baby, live here among us for 30-some years, and then allow himself to be tortured and killed and whipped and nailed to a cross, okay? But because Jesus allowed him that, that to happen, and because Jesus condescended to come from heaven and live among us, you know, us lowly humans, he would come down from heaven and do that, and then allow himself to be tortured and killed. As a result of that, all of God's promises can come true. And so in that very real sense, Jesus is the amen and the yes to all of God's promises, all right? Now, there's another sense in which Jesus is the amen to God's promises as well and to who God is, and that is sometimes as Christians, it's easy to doubt, does God actually love me? Sometimes, we, sometimes our feelings lie to us, and it, we struggle to know, does God love me? Does God love us? Is God a God of love? And whenever we have doubts about that, we can look back to Jesus, and we can look back to the, that act in history where he, where he went through the cross and where he allowed them to do those things to him, we can look back and that's the proof. Jesus is God's yes and amen to us. He made these promises. He does love us. He does intend to follow through on them. And by looking to Jesus, we can see that he's going to follow through on his promises. Jesus is the amen. And sometimes I know when people doubt, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, sometimes as Christians it can be easy to doubt, you know, the resurrection. Is the resurrection going to really happen? Is heaven going to really happen? You know, is there really life after death? Will God really follow through? And again, we can look back to Jesus, and we can look back at his commitment and what he suffered through, and it shows that God is serious about his promises. Jesus is the amen to all of God's promises, the yes and amen to the fact that God loves us, and he will follow through. Now, in the case of Laodicea, this this introduction is more than just an encouragement. It is encouraging to think of Jesus as the amen. That's awesome. But in the case of Laodicea, Jesus is doing more here than just trying to encourage them with the fact that he is the amen to all of God's promises. Jesus is also positioning himself here to give a very stern rebuke. See, because the church of Laodicea, as we're going to see as we go through this, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. This is a very complacent church. 
and they are very self-satisfied in who they are and what they're doing. We've got the Bible teaching, we've got the programs, we've got a little bulletin board with missionary pictures on the wall, and so we're good. They just think that we're good with God. We're saved, we're on our way to heaven, we're doing what God wants us to do. How do you know? Well, we have services every week, don't we? And we preach about the Bible, don't we? And, and Jesus is positioning himself right here at the beginning. He's saying, I'm the amen. God's promises are not based on a foundation of doctrines you believe, even though believing right doctrine is very important, but the foundation of the promises coming true in your life is not based on what you believe. It's based on your relationship with me. I'm the amen. I'm the gateway to everything that is God's. I'm the gateway to the kingdom of God. I'm the gateway to the promises of God. I'm the gateway to the presence of God. I'm the amen. The God's yes and amen. And so what I'm going to say to you, however smug and self-assured you feel that, hey, we're a good church because we believe right things and we get together all the time, we have Bible teaching, and he says, no, 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 you're basing your confidence on the wrong thing. It's what I'm going to say to you and what I'm about to say to you. I'm God's amen. And it's through me that the promises come, and it's what I think that's really important. And so he's positioning himself for the rebuke. And so we keep reading in verse 15, I know your works. I know your works. Church at Laodicea feels smug because they have correct beliefs, but Jesus says, your beliefs are worthless, and I can tell because of what's coming out of you and your works. Okay? I know your works. Now, a lot of Christians nowadays, the moment you start talking about works, they get up, they're all hopping up and down mad because the moment you mention the word works, works has become, in popular Christian culture, it's like a bad word. You can't talk about works. It's all about grace. Okay? Well, an amen, you and I can't work our way into salvation. You and I could never do enough good things to please God and get saved. Just on our own. Not possible at all. It's true. You can't be saved by works. But this idea that works don't matter in the Christian life and the only thing that matters is what you believe, I want you to notice how far our popular Christian culture has drifted from the words of Jesus and has drifted from Scripture. Because Jesus, in five of these seven letters we've looked at, five of them, five of them, right after his intro, he says who he is, as he begins his address to the church, and he's going to talk to them now, in five of the seven letters, he starts them, I know your works. Not, I know your beliefs. Certainly beliefs are important. In a couple of the letters, he does talk about, he encourages the, the church at Ephesus, for example, for holding on to what is true. So certainly that includes beliefs. Beliefs certainly are important. I'm not saying they're not important. But in five of the letters, he's not talking about, I know your beliefs. Way to go. Pat on the back. You believe the right things. No, no. He says in five of the seven letters, I know your works. And out of their works, Jesus is rebuking and encouraging. See, works, you can't earn salvation with Jesus just by doing good things. But let me tell you this. Works are hugely important to Jesus. Your works are hugely important to Jesus because your works reveal the state of your heart. And your heart, the state of your heart, really matters to Jesus. I'm going to show you a couple of passages here. Jesus talks, talked about this a lot during his ministry on earth. Let me show you a couple. Matthew 7, verse, starting in verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says, you can recognize uh, what's going on in a person's heart by what comes out of them, by the fruit of what comes out of them. Their attitudes, their words, the way they treat people, you will recognize them by their fruit. 
Your works matter to Jesus because your works expose what's going on in your heart. Again, Jesus talked about this all over the place. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 33 is another one. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Okay? A, a good heart won't have bad fruit. It won't have bad attitudes and bad words coming out of it all the time. Okay? You'll know it by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, as Christians, we get this all disconnected all the time. We think bad things come out of us because bad things happen to us. But bad things come out of us because bad things are in our heart. You know, when you hit your finger with the hammer and you swear like crazy, okay? The fact that you got an owie is from the hammer, okay? The fact that vulgar language came out of your mouth is not because of the hammer. That's because that was what was in your heart, okay? So Jesus says it's a, it's a heart. So this is why works matter to Jesus. Works reveal the heart. Jesus really cares about the heart. And so he says this in verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. On judgment day, Jesus is, going to, is not going to judge you on your beliefs. He's going to judge you on your attitudes and words and actions because that's what reveals the heart. See, when you stand before Jesus on judgment day, this is so important, and consciously we know this, but subconsciously we treat it as if it's not true. When you stand before Jesus on judgment day, you're not, you're not good. he's not going to give you a written test. Jesus is going to give you a written test on Judgment Day. Fill out the correct doctrine and you're in. Who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. Oh, good answer, you're in. He's not going to give you a written test, who is Lord. He's going to say, let's look in your life to see if you actually made me Lord. Did you make me Lord in your parenting? Did you make me Lord in your finances? Did you make me Lord in your life? Did you care about what I thought? Did you listen to me? Did you obey me? He's not going to give you a written test, who is Lord, and you fill out the correct doctrine and you're in. He's going to look at your attitudes, actions, and behaviors. He's not going to give you a written test and say, what was the most important commandment? Well, love God and love my neighbor. He's not going to give you a written test. So what, you got the answer right on a written test. We're going to see what you really believed and where your heart was really at by how you live. Okay, so the most important commandment is love God and love your neighbor. Now let's look at your attitudes. Did you spend your whole life totally unsubmissive to authority? You were horrible to your boss. You were horrible to your employees. The way you treated people, you were just a miserable person, bitter all the time, resentful, constantly starting fights, talking bad and all that sort of stuff. He's not going to give you a written test at Judgment Day. He's going to show you your words and your actions, and those are going to expose what your heart is like. Now, of course, there's forgiveness. Some of you are, oh, and you're thinking about things you did 20 years ago. Well, hopefully you've repented, and there's for the forgiveness of sins, and if you've really repented, you're going to see the fruit of that repentance coming out afterwards. And Jesus certainly isn't going to hold things about against you that you've repented from, and you're following him. But it's the fruit of your life that exposes the state of your heart. Really, really important. Now, some of you are really scared right now. And you're thinking to yourselves, i got to go home and work on my works. Right? That's what some of you are thinking. Oh boy, okay. i got to go home and work on my works right now. Because Chris is saying, it's all about my works on judgment. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Jesus is saying here either. 
The point of this, what Jesus is saying here, is not that we need to go home and work on our works. Your works expose the state of your heart. What matters to Jesus is he wants a heart that's depending on him and in love with him rather than in love with itself. He's looking for people who are serving him rather than serving themselves and the devil. So where works come in is works show you who you're focused on. Your works show you if you're focused on Jesus or if you're focused on yourself. Now, if you look at the fruit of your works and the attitudes in your life and the feelings you have about people and the thoughts you have about people and the things you say about people, if the fruit of your works is that you're focused on yourself and not on Jesus, you don't fix that by going home and working on your works. Just like you don't fix, you know, an apple tree, you know, you don't, okay, I don't like the fruit that's coming off this. I would rather it was a different fruit. I would rather it was a banana. And now you massage the apples, you try and tape bananas to the branches. You, you don't change the fruit. By changing the fruit, you got to change the tree. So if the fruit of your works is that you're focused on self and not on Jesus, it, you don't change that by going home and trying really hard to have different works. You change that by now focusing on Jesus and repenting and saying, Jesus, the, the attitudes and the thoughts and the words of my life are showing that I am not loving you. But I can't change that just by trying to change the fruit. i got to get the heart changed. I'm coming to you, and you talk to Jesus about that, and you listen to him, and you seek him, and what, as he begins to work in your life, the fruit begins to change, and the works begin to change. So works are hugely important, but not in the sense that we go home and we focus on our works all the time. The other thing we need to talk about here just very briefly is, is what kind of works are we talking about here? Because the moment I say the word works, some people think, well, I... What works? What works is Jesus looking for? And we think of, automatically, the first thing that comes to our mind is, well, maybe we heard a missionary one time at a thing, and he would fast for three weeks at a time, and he won thousands of people to Jesus, and he gave everything he had to the poor. And so we have this sort of sense of guilt that those are the works Jesus is looking for. If I look at my life, I don't fast for three weeks every month, and I, don't give, I haven't given everything to the poor, and I haven't led thousands of people to Christ, and I haven't done all these spiritual works and so we think, oh, then that, this shows I'm not depending on Jesus. That's not the works Jesus is looking for. The works Jesus is looking for is not religious. You can do all kinds of religious, spiritual things and not have any of Jesus' spirit anywhere near you. You can just do religious things. Jesus gives us a list. Paul actually makes a short list in Galatians of what are the works Jesus is looking for that, that, that show that your heart is in. Excuse me. I shouldn't have that granola bar right before I came up here. Sorry. Okay, it's back now. Okay. Um, where was I? Galatians, something. Yeah, the fruit of the works. Okay, so the works Jesus is looking for is not religious works. He's looking for heart attitudes and how you treat people. Let's look at this. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. Okay? Jesus, on Judgment Day, the works he's looking for, now, of course, he's looking for obedience. If he told you to do something, you need to do it. But the list he's looking for isn't how many thousands of people do you lead to Christ? Unless he told you, to, you know, except that he is taking you through life and you need to obey. And when he says you need to share with so-and-so or your, your friend or your coworker or whatever, obviously you need to obey. But the list he's looking for isn't how many people did you lead to Christ, how many days did you fast, how many religious things did you, how much money did you give to the poor. That's not the list. 
Because again, you can do all those things and not be walking with Jesus or dependent on him. What he's looking for is what are the things that bubble out of your thought life, out of your attitudes, out of your words, out of your interactions with people? What are the things that bubble out? Is it love? Is it understanding? Is it kindness? He's not looking for the external works that people look for. He's looking for the heart works. These are works. These are the works. It's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's looking for. This is the sign of a good heart, not religious activity. Although, again, when you're following Jesus, there is going to be, you know, you're going to do some of these other things for him and obey him, but these are the works of a good heart. And these are the works Jesus is looking for that expose what you're doing. Now, you can have all the right doctrine you like. You can have the Bible teaching. You can believe all the right stuff. And you can go to church all the time. And you can even witness and do those sorts of things. And you can have none of these things on this list. Paul makes another list of how do you know what are the works that show that I'm not focused on Jesus, I'm actually focused on myself. And he makes the list just in the verses previous. He says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. I, I didn't underline all of them. I just because some of them are obvious, and we've talked about them lots before. I mean, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, those are obvious, right? And, and I, so we've talked about those. Obviously, when you're living in those things, you're focused on yourself, not on Jesus, okay? And of course, I know there are people who are repenting, and sometimes it takes time to come out of those things. But, but how about idolatry? Sometimes we feel smug, like, oh, I'm not living in those things. Oh, how about idolatry? Paul says in, in uh, Timothy, he says, greed is idolatry. It's not just worshiping an idol. Greed, materialism. All your thoughts are about pursuing things and money and comfort and pleasure. That's actually a sign. When that, all your thoughts that bubble out and all your talk that bubbles out is about the pursuit of things and the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of comfort and the pursuit of money and success in business, when that's all that comes out of your life, not that it's bad to be successful or to make money, but when that's all that comes out, idolatry shows that's the works of the heart. You might be a totally nice person. You might not have broken any of the commandments the last week, but the works of your heart show you're focused on yourself, not on Jesus. This is what was happening with Laodicea. They had the outward religious works. They looked nice. They were respectable. They had services. They had Bible teaching. And Jesus says, I know your works. And if this is what is bubbling out of your life, you're not in right relationship with Jesus. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, I mean, these are sort of the white-collar crimes, right? Don't think of them as that bad. That, you know, my husband deals with pornography. He's really got struggles, and he's the bad guy in this relationship. Meanwhile, you struggle with fits of anger and jealousy. It's, a, it's right on the same list with sexual immorality, right? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. I mean, you've got rivalry with all the businesses around you. You have rivalry in your family with all your extended family. You have rivalry and dissension everywhere you go. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, it's not that our works save us. Not, not at all, not at all. You cannot be saved. We all are being saved and forgiven out of these things, right? You can't be saved by doing good things for Jesus. But here's the thing. If you are truly focused on him and depending on him, which... which which set of works, which fruit is being, is, are you growing in? Is it this list? Is it this list or is it the one we looked at before of love, joy, peace? Think about some of those. Meditate on them. Kindness, goodness, self-control. What is the fruit that is, nobody's perfect, not at all. 
But if your heart, a good tree will produce good fruit and a bad fruit tree will produce bad fruit. So which list of things is bubbling out of your thought life and your mouth more and more? Because on Judgment Day, Jesus is going to look at those things to show you what the state of your heart was. And so Jesus says to Laodicea, I know your works. And he says that to us today as well. I know your works. If we keep going here, verse 15 again, back in Revelation chapter 3. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, hot, cold, lukewarm, because there's been lots of misunderstanding about this passage and the way people teach it, and even the way I've thought about it in the past, is, is actually wrong. Okay? Uh, because when Jesus says hot, cold, and lukewarm, okay, his, the, the people listening to this in Laodicea, the Christians listening to this in Laodicea, got it immediately. And you have to understand a little bit about the geography here, first of all. Okay? Um, there were three cities in this area that they were like sister cities, and the churches in these cities were sister churches. They were tightly linked together. Okay? Uh, so you have Laodicea, which was up on this plateau, several hundred feet up above the, the plain that was around. Six miles to the, to the north, you had a city called Hierapolis. And then 10 miles to the southeast, down uh, close to the river, was the city of Colossae. Okay? Now Colossae, we know a fair amount about, because Paul wrote a letter to the Christians at Colossae. It's called Colossians. The book of Colossians was Paul's letter to the Christians at Colossae. Now, um, when, when he wrote the letter to the Christians at Colossae, he mentions Laodicea and Hierapolis because the three churches would, were connected and they would share letters. So when Paul would write a letter to Colossae, they were supposed to share it with the Christians at Hierapolis and Laodicea. And when he would write a letter to Laodicea, they were supposed to share it with Hierapolis and Colossae. They knew each other very well and these cities were close together, all right? I want to just read this because I, I, I like cross-linking stuff in the Bible. I, I always enjoy where I find that. I'll read you a, a short passage from the end of Colossians here where Paul mentions Hierapolis and Laodicea. And you see these three cities tightly linked together, the Colossian Christians and the Laodiceans and the, uh, the ones from Hierapolis. Uh, verse uh, 13 here, Paul says, For I bear him uh, witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Uh, so there you see it. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So there was uh, various house churches and stuff around these cities. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So we don't have that letter anymore, but Paul actually also wrote a letter to the Laodicean Christians. We don't, we don't, we don't have that one. All right? So anyway, you've got these three sisters uh, or these three cities, neighboring uh, cities and these three sister churches, okay? Now, okay, now to bring this alive, they put up the, uh, the Revelation passage. Good. Thank you, Dave. Um, um, well, the thing you have to understand is these three cities were all known for their water, but for totally different things, okay? And again, so when, Je when Jesus says hot, cold, and lukewarm to the church in Laodicea, he's saying something, they all get this. All the Christians in that area totally get what's going on, okay? Um, because Hierapolis was known for its hot water, okay? Hierapolis, uh, just a few miles north there of Laodicea, they were situated right on top of, the, of these hot springs, and they were famous all over the province of Asia. People would come, and this hot water bubbled up actually in the city already. It flowed out onto this huge plateau area, and they had essentially what was the ancient equivalent of spas. And people would come from all over to sit in these hot springs and relax. They were supposed to have medicinal uh, qualities. People would come for healing and relaxing and just to sit in hot water because it feels good. 
Um, so Hierapolis was known for its hot water, okay? Now Colossae, uh, south of, just a few miles south of Laodicea, was known for the exact opposite thing. They were situated on top of these cold springs, okay? And water, there's some mountains nearby there, and melt water and stuff would go into the ground, and Colossae was built around these cold springs where this water, this, it was very, very cold, bubbled up, it was very pure, and Colossae was actually known in the ancient world, and travelers would speak of it, as having the best drinking water in the area, okay? It was very cold, it was very pure, okay? So they were known for cold water. If you wanted to get the best drinking water, travelers knew Colossae was the place to be. If you wanted to go sit in a hot tub, Hierapolis was the place to be. One had hot water, one had cold water. Now, Laodicea. Laodicea is up on this plateau. They're not close to any good sources of water. Now, Laodicea was a very wealthy community. Like I said before, it was a banking center. They were known for, uh, they had also uh, uh, worked with breeding sheep, and, and they had this amazing black wool. It was very soft and jet black. And uh, so they were known for a bunch of things, and they had lots of money. But they were also known for having the worst water anywhere. Um, because they had to get their water. Because they were high up, they weren't close to a river or a spring. And so they had to actually, they had a very, and it cost them a lot of money, but they had a, a very complex uh, aqueduct system using some siphon technology in places, uh, believe it or not, which is amazing. Um, but they, were, they, would haul, they had this water coming piped in from six miles away from a hot spring. Now, um, um, first of all, drinking water out of a hot spring, that's not my idea of good, okay? Very minerally, uh, and, and this water was very minerally. Lots of this stuff is left, by the way, archaeologists have found clogged pipes full of uh, uh, calcium carbonate, okay? So this water was very, very minerally, and, and it would travel six miles through these pipes, and they would have to replace the pipes all the time. Like, there's actually writing about this because the water was so bad. And, but it would cool down, at least the hot water would cool down over the six miles as it came to Laodicea. By the time it got to Laodicea, they would capture it all in, it was, again, sort of an, the ancient equivalent of a, of a water tower. And then there was pipes going out through the city. Again, the, the city was actually quite technologically advanced for its time. And would deliver water to the houses, all the rich houses uh, anyway. And, um, and so, but by the time it got, the, the water got to the people in Laodicea, it was lukewarm and gross. It was known to make people sick, okay? So their water was awful. It was good for nothing. Now, Here's the thing. A lot of people over the years have taught this passage because it just, it, it ties in with, we use the analogy of spiritual passion. We talk about people being red hot for God or being cold for God, and we have this idea of passion being on a, on a thermometer. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Okay? When Jesus says, and, and the reason for this, it is really important because he says there, the second sentence there in verse 15, he says, I'd rather, like, I wish you were either cold or hot. Now, people have taught this for years, and what they've said is, hot and cold is, a, is, is, is the temperature of your passion for God. And so hot means you're hot for God. Cold means you're totally dead to God. You don't believe him. You don't follow in him. And then lukewarm is you're right in the middle. And what Jesus is saying here then is, he would rather you be cold and unbelieving than be in the middle. And that is just the wrong way. That Jesus would not rather you be unbelieving. Okay, it's not better. You know, the, you know it's not... Cold and unbelieving in Jesus is not better than apathy. There's, there's nothing worse than to turn away from Jesus. Is that not true? I mean, how many people here right now, you don't have to raise your hands, but just think in your heads, how many of you right now are absolutely red hot on fire wholehearted for Jesus? Well, I mean, how many, how many times in my life am I not that, those things? Okay, I'm growing 
I'm growing in love for Jesus. I'm growing in wholeheartedness. Well, if that's the way we teach this passage, then what Jesus is saying is, if you're not going to be wholehearted, it's all or nothing. Then just, whoop, just, I'd rather you were totally stone cold to me. No, that is not what Jesus is saying. It is not better to be stone cold than to be in the middle and growing towards hot. It's always better to be hotter towards Jesus than colder. So you say, well, what is he talking about here? The analogy he's using is not a temperature gauge of passion. What he's doing is contrasting, because they didn't even think that way. They didn't use that analogy in those days anyway. The analogy here is hot water is good for something. You can sit in it and relax and get better. Cold water is good for drinking. So you've got, you know, cold water is useful, hot water is useful, lukewarm water is useless. He's saying to the Laodicean church, you've got services and you've got church and you've got programs, you've got Bible teaching, but your works, you are useless to me, you are useless to the kingdom, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I wish you were hot or cold. I mean, we've looked in these letters to the seven churches, there's different kinds of churches, right? We looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus was a church, they were very big on holiness and purity and truth. And they were low on love. Jesus gave them a very stern rebuke about being low on love. But I can work with you. At least you're zealous about holiness. I can work with you. We looked at the letter to the church of Thyatira. They were the opposite end of the spectrum from Ephesus. They were, they, Jesus sternly rebuked them because holiness was not a big thing. They had a lot of impurity and, and they weren't confessing sin and they had problems there. But at least they were big on love and service. Jesus gave them stern rebuke about holiness. But he said, I can work with you. You know, you're big on love. You're big on holiness. I can work there. Laodicea, they don't have a zeal for holiness. They don't have a zeal for love. They just have church. They just have services. They have Bible teaching and doctrine. That's all they have. He says, you're useless to me. I wish you were cold, then you'd be good for something, or hot, then you'd be good for something I could work with you. But you're, you're neither, and you're totally useless to the kingdom. Totally useless to the kingdom. Now, I want you to notice in these next verses, now it's going to really bring us alive now, how self-satisfied and complacent these Christians at Laodicea are. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's the key right there. I need nothing. The heart attitude of these people towards Jesus and, and is just, I need nothing. I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Now, they won't have said that out loud. Okay, nobody will have gotten up on, on a weekend and said, you know, a service and, and been like, hey, we need nothing. No. But we, we Christians are way too smart for that. We're way too self-deceived, okay? They would have papered this over with all kinds of, this is their heart attitude, but they would have papered that over with all kinds of pious statements, just like, just like we do. I mean, which Christian, which one of us here, if you've been coming to church for any amount of time, someone asks you, do you need Jesus? Oh, it's all about Jesus. Oh, it's, it's all about him. I mean, I could never do this. I could never do what I'm doing without Jesus. We say these pious statements that sound humble. And then we go home and we live totally in our own strength and there's like no prayer in our lives which shows we're not relying on him, we're not listening to him, we're not seeking him. But if anybody asks, it's all about him. I'm just thankful to Jesus because it's all about him and I wouldn't be able to do this without him. Meanwhile, all week, when's the last time you even talked to him? You're not depending on him at all. You're doing it all in your own strength. See, your actions, your works reveal what your heart really is. And these people, their works showed that they felt. They wouldn't say it, but I need nothing. I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, 
and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You know, I, I looked up a bunch of commentaries this week, and because uh, and, I was looking at the I am rich, and, and, uh, and, and all of them, pretty much all of them totally agreed, these people, again, were not bragging about money. I'm rich, I prosper, I need, I need nothing. Again, it's too overt. No, no Christian, no self-respecting Christian does that, Okay? The point here is, a, is an attitude. I am rich. Not speaking of money, but I am rich. I have everything I need. I have my beliefs. I have my doctrines. I have my safe little religion, my safe little church, and I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. That's, that's the feeling, the, the feeling that is in this church, okay? And uh, blind. Jesus says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Blind. You have the doctrines of Jesus. You have the Bible teaching. You've got all of these things, but you're blind. You know about God, but you don't know God. You know about God. You have services. You even sing about them. You know about God, but you don't know the ways of God. You're not intimate. You're not close with God. You're blind. I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. You think you have it together. You have nice programs. You feel like a Christian, but you are blind. You, know, you don't know God. And you are naked. The Christian is supposed to be clothed in white robes of righteousness, right? But Jesus looks at them, and no doubt, again, they will have had programs. They will have had their things, whatever they did. They will have had their church services. Just like Sardis, we looked at two weeks ago. You have a reputation for being alive. There's one of those churches you would have looked at. It would have been fine. It would look good. I, that's why they said, I'm rich, I prosper, I need nothing. Everybody would have told them it's a good church. If your kids would have gone there, you would have said, oh, awesome. So glad you're going there. It's a Bible-believing church. It's a Bible-teaching church. That means automatically it's just good. I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, but you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. You're naked. Jesus says, you don't even have white garments on of righteousness. Those good things you're doing, you're not doing independence on me. You're just doing good things. Out of human effort, just out of religious, religiosity, out of this self-satisfied religious smugness, and he says, you're naked. You're blind, you're naked, because you're not doing them for me or with me. Just doing them out of that religious spirit. Now, it's scary in some ways. Jesus rebuked both the Sardis and the Laodicea. It's a little bit scary in a way, because on the outside, they look so good. So how do you know? It, I mean, they were doing church. They were doing this stuff. Jesus gives them stern rebuke. So the scary thing is, well, how do, how do we know, right? I mean, that's the question we need to ask ourselves as we read these letters. How do, how do we know? As a church here at Southland, we have to ask ourselves all the time because we've got to make sure we don't become Laodicean church. And as individuals, we have to make sure we don't become Laodicean Christians and Laodicean families. How do we know if they had it all together on the outside? I'm rich, I prosper, I need nothing. They felt really good about themselves as a church and about, as Christians and just said it's the exact opposite. How you feel about yourself is how I see you. So you say, well, how, how do we know what we are? Okay? Well, just say, I know your works. We have to look for the right kind of works. Right? We have to look for the heart works that Jesus is looking for. We could do a whole long list. There's certainly not just one or two. We could look at a whole list. Pastor Ray could do a great series and lots of principles and stuff that over the years and stuff, what Jesus calls a church and what a proper heart looks like. I just want to look at two. I just want to look at two. Parallels a little bit what we talked about two weeks ago in Sardis. But I want to look at two. How do you know when you're complacent? See, the core root issue with the Laodiceans is this heart of, I need nothing. There's no desperation of, Jesus, you better work, you better show up. We need you to work in our lives. 
And, and, and that, that lack, that, that complacency is the root of the problem. He says, you're not depending on me. You're, you're walking in self-effort. And the number one sign, there's others we could look at, but the number one sign that you are walking as a Laodicean Christian or that we would be a Laodicean church itself then is when, when you see a lack of prayer. A lack of prayer. The number one sign that this kind of complacency has taken up residence in our hearts or in our church is a lack of prayer. It's as simple as that. It's just as simple as that. If you feel like you need Jesus in your day-to-day life, the automatic fruit that comes out of that is you will talk to him and you will ask him for help and you will listen to him and you will seek guidance. You can say all you want, I need Jesus and I wouldn't be able to do this without Jesus, but if the fruit of your life isn't out of your life spills this constant prayer. I'm not talking about devotions every morning even. I'm not, because people can even make that into something legalistic. I'm talking about whereas a way of life, it just comes out of you. Jesus, I need you in this. I need you about this situation. Oh, I need you about this. I really need your help with this child. What are you saying to me about this child? What are you saying about, about this business decision? And you stop and you listen and you seek and you ask. That is the automatic fruit of someone who feels in their heart like they need Jesus. Someone who says that they need Jesus but actually doesn't feel that in their heart and they're quite satisfied to just work in their own human effort won't, won't, doesn't even think to pray to Jesus like that. They might have a devotional habit that they just do. They have their half an hour and they just do it because that's what we're supposed to do. But as a fruit of their life, there isn't this calling out to Jesus, this praying. You know, the more I walk with Jesus, and I'm not nearly perfect, I'm not, oh, my love for him is so weak, it's so inadequate, it's so up and down, but the more I walk with Jesus the more I feel inadequate about doing anything, parenting, preaching, being a husband, anything without Jesus' help. Because the more I walk with him, the more I realize that maybe on the outside it looks okay spiritually, but on the inside I am not capable of leading my kids to Christ and leading them for Christ and leading them to love Christ unless his spirit is at work in me, changing my attitudes and changing my feelings and changing my words toward them. And as I grow towards them, I, that increasing sense of inadequacy, not, and it, this is exactly the opposite of our self-esteem culture, which just tells us to always look in the mirror and how good I am and how handsome and how I'm just a good dad and I'm a good... No, that is, you know what? Jesus needs to be in you and you just need him. And the more I walk with him, the more I realize, apart from Jesus, yuck! The way I am with my kids and my wife and here at church. And so out of that spills a prayer life. And I'm not talking about hours and hours in prayer and fasting. I'm talking about throughout the day calling out Jesus. Oh, I really need help with this. I really need help, help with Charlie over here. I really need help with this thing at church over here. What are you saying to me here? Jesus, I'm seeking you. Please guide me in this. Help me to have your heart in this. And this prayer life spills out of you because you feel like you need him. In a church, it's the same in a church as it is with individuals. If a church actually feels... Like, we need Jesus. Like, we actually need him. Like, not just saying it. Lots of churches say they need Jesus, but you can tell if they say they need Jesus, and then the rest of the week, they just go about their programs, and they just run their programs and meet the budget, and nobody ever stops to get together and seek God's face in prayer, to listen, to intercede. A church that does not pray does not feel like it needs Jesus. That church in its heart is really believing, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. We're... Thanks, Jesus. We met the budget again this year. Woo, we got the programs. Away we go. And Jesus says, I look at your works that you think are so great. I look at them. You think I have everything. He says, you're wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. 
I'm not speaking this message here today. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, and you're thinking, you know, you're starting to judge and criticize other churches. This is, get other churches out of your mind right now. Don't even think about them. This message is not about being critical of other churches and seeing, do they match up to Chris's, you know, uh, you know things here out of Laodicea, that this is a good church or not church, so that's a bad church, that's a bad church. This is not about other churches. This is about us. I'm preaching this message because we need to look inward and make sure we never become a Laodicean church, that we never become Laodicean Christians. And when prayer is out corporately or prayer is out individually, you can bet that however good you feel and smug you feel about your Christianity, the desperation for God is gone, and you might feel like, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing spiritually, but Jesus says you are wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. And of course, out of that, and we could talk about many other traits But out of that lack of dependency on Jesus comes a second trait of a Laodicean Christian or a Laodicean church, and that is there is no power or abiding presence of God. Oh, they have services. They have services. Okay, and they have Bible teaching. Lots of, I know I love Bible teaching. I mean, I'm preaching out of the Bible today. But We have Bible teaching, we have services, we have worship. That's what makes a church wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. On the outside, you look great, but you have nothing. You have nothing. And you can tell, I know your works. On the outside, everybody's looking at the wrong works. What I'm looking at is there is no sense of dependency. There's a sense of complacency. You have everything you need. You are not depending on me. I can see it. There's no prayer. And as a result of that, the other thing you'll see is you'll see a church that has services, and we could become this church. That's why I preach this. You have services, you have programs, you have all of that, but there's no power or presence of God in that place. In your life, in a church, you look back over your life, there's no steady, you look in the church, there's no steady stream of testimonies. When the power of God is in a place, he's touch, he touches people. There's a steady stream of testimonies, people's lives being changed. Okay, you have programs, you have services, you have Bible teaching. Has anybody's life been changed recently? Unsaved to saved, bondage to freedom. And I'm not just talking about unsaved to saved and bondage to freedom. That you need to have too. But how about all of us need changing, amen? I mean, we need changing right to the end of our lives. So when's the last time God touched our lives? Steady stream of testimonies, unsaved to save, bondage to freedom, and everybody else being changed. More loving, more free, more joyful, more trusting, more dependent, more godly, more humble. All these things, radically steady stream of testimonies that is throughout the church, people's lives being touched and changed. When's the last time? You had an answer to prayer. You know, you talk to a lot of people nowadays. What's going on in your church? We've got services. We've got programs. We've got missionaries on the bulletin board. When's the last time you sought God about something as a church and you saw him answer in big ways? Um, Jesus said, I know your works. I know your works. You look good on the outside to the works that human beings look at. You've got the services. You've got the programs. You've got all that. But I know your works. When's the last time you had an answer to prayer? Is the power of God or the presence of God anywhere in that place? Anywhere in that family? When's the, oh, bro. When's the last time touches of God in that place? You and God is in a place and people are seeking God. Emotions aren't everything. They're not nearly everything. They can't be trusted all the time. They come and they go. But I'll tell you one thing. In a place where people really love Jesus, you're going to have touches of his presence. 
You're going to have times of deep conviction of sin. You're going to have times where just joy, maybe it expresses itself in some people in tears, maybe it doesn't in you, but touches of just that joy that Jesus is here. A church that is dependent on Jesus, a family that is dependent on Jesus, an individual who is dependent on Jesus, there's this prayer that bubbles out, I need you, Jesus, regularly listening. And out of that, the power of God and the presence of God is in that church and is in that family and is in that life. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, they have the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You know, kids that grow up in churches like this, Laodicean churches, Laodicean families, they're the hardest to reach for Jesus when they get older. You know that? And I'm not putting guilt trip on anyone. And I know there's people here, I'm, man, maybe your kids, they're not following the Lord right now, and I'm not putting that guilt on you. They, you might have raised them totally, you might be a totally godly person, you might have prayed lots, they might have made bad choices. I'm not saying in every case where people don't follow Jesus because they're parents. But we have a systemic problem in North America right now. Massive amounts of youth are growing up and are walking away from the church. Massive amounts. Why? I'll tell you one of the biggest reasons. They are being raised in churches and families that talk about God every Sunday, that pray before every meal, and the kids never experience God in those homes or in those churches. They live like that for 18, 19 years, and then they think it's just a game. And then they go on in life and they walk away from God and they might be nice, respectable people and they're harder to reach than the most hardened atheists because when you want to talk to them about Jesus, and I know lots of people like this, you want to talk to them about Jesus, they don't think you have anything to offer because they think they've already tried that. But they haven't actually tried Jesus. They only think they have. All they've tried is a game, a religious game that was played and it gets played in many churches and many families today. So Jesus says, church lady, I know your works. You're not dependent on me at all. You're not seeking me. You're just playing a game. It looks great on the outside. It looks like you have Jesus on the outside. But the kids growing up in the middle of that, they leave at the end, they're empty because it looked like Jesus on the outside, but there was no Jesus on the inside. And you could tell there was no prayer. There was no power of God. There was no abiding presence of God in that place. And so Jesus says to the Laodiceans, he says to us, be zealous and repent, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous. And repent. Be zealous. Jesus does not want us living in apathy and indifference. It's actually disobedient. Do you know what? It's, it's disobedience to live in worldliness, apathy, and indifference. He says, be zealous. Be zealous and repent. There's hope in this. Jesus would not command us to do something we weren't able to do. We can listen to him, we can go to him, we can look at the fruit of our works in our families, in our lives, in our church, and we can say, Lord, the fruit of our works, it might look good on the outside, but the fruit of our works, is there any power of God here? Is there any presence of God? Do we have any testimonies or lives changing? Is there any prayer? Is there any dependency on you? We can look at the fruit of our works, we can see I'm living in indifference and in apathy and worldliness, and then we can go to God. We don't have to live there. We don't have to be fatalistic about it. We're not doomed to that. Jesus, you said be zealous and repent. That means there's practical things I can do to follow you. I can talk to you about this and you will lead me to a place of zealousness if I'll be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I just love that. There's an encouragement there too. He says to lay the scenes. I mean, he's just giving them, I mean, he's got them bent over his leg and he's spanking them is what he's doing in this letter, okay? And then he says, those whom I love. He loves us. He loves the Laodicean Christians. He loves the Laodicean church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So the ball is in our court. The ball is in our court. He's not looking for us to be perfect. He's not looking for us to focus on our works. He's asking us to look at the state of our attitudes and our words and are we de- actually depending on him or just talking about depending on him? Is there actually the power of God at work in my life? Is there actually some presence of God at, at work in my life? Or am I just living this game? He's not asking us to be perfect. He's asking us to look at that. If that's the state of it, you can't change it just by going to work there. You've got to turn your focus to him and say, Jesus, I believe you can change me. I believe I can be zealous for you. I believe I can please you by your Holy Spirit. You can change me and you can change the fruit of my life. I can become dependent on you. And this is what I want to do. I just I want to finish this message. I did this uh, two weeks ago. I'm doing this more and more. I'm just absolutely committed. I don't want you guys to come here and be entertained. This is not about teaching. Teaching is important. Bible teaching is important. What you believe is important. But if all we do is just come to services, listen to teaching, get a little bit of entertainment, we just go home, what have we done? Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. When we come to church, we need to encounter Jesus, turn our focus to Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you speaking to me today? And so this is how I want to finish. I'm going to give you a minute or two, then after that we're going to sing, and we're just going to quietly listen. If you have a pen or a pencil, you have your phone or whatever you like to write stuff down on where you're going to remember it, just, I want you just to grab a piece of paper right now. If you totally don't want to do this, you don't have to. Um, I'm not going to make you do it. Those, God's not going to speak to you if you're just doing it because you have to. But if you want to hear God speaking something to you today, he says, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The ball's in our court. He's already knocking. He's knocking on the doors of our church. He's knocking on the doors of your family. He's knocking on the doors of your heart. And his answer is already, I'll come in and I'll eat with him. I'll have a meal as with friends. If you'll say yes to him and be zealous and repent. And so I'm just going to ask God. I could give you a list of 15 practical things I could think of off the top of my head. Here's how you be zealous and repent. How useless is that? We have hundreds of people here. Hundreds of different lives and things. What we need is Jesus, what's the one or two things from you to me today? Before I go home today, we're going to pray. Jesus, what are you saying to me? How, what do, what's my next step? How do I go from where I am right now, zealousness and repent? I, wanna, I don't want to live as a Laodicean Christian. I want to live as a real deal, knowing that Jesus is not condemning you, that he loves you, he's drawing you in. So you got your pens and pencils, you got a piece of paper. I'm going to pray. I'm going to just take a minute quietly. You write down whatever the Lord brings to your mind. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your love. Those whom you love, you discipline. Those whom you love, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're not condemning us. But in love, you are asking us, Jesus. You are asking us to be zealous. You're asking us to be dependent on you. You're asking us to not just have a shell of religion and religious games and religious phrases, but to be the real thing, to depend on you and have your power moving through our midst and in our families and in our hearts. And I have so much hope because when we ask you this question, you will answer. We're not doomed to materialism and apathy and indifference. And so I pray that in this next minute, Lord Jesus, that you would give each of us something you want us to take out of this letter to the Laodiceans. What's our next step this week? Thank you for what you're going to do.
not quite done. You can keep writing after whatever. I'm just going to pray and then we'll finish with a song. Jesus, pray that as we obey you and take steps to depend on you and get past the, the religious cliches and just going to church and we get to this place of actually depending on you and following you, pray that you would open up a river of the power of your Holy Spirit in this church and a stream of testimonies that would eventually cover all of us. We wouldn't just be hearing about other people's testimonies, but we would be testifying ourselves, that we would be living testimonies, each of us being radically transformed for you into the fruit of the Spirit, by the power of your Spirit in our families, our marriages, our parenting, as individuals, as families, and as this church, Jesus. I long for the day, Jesus, when at our services, the presence of your Spirit will be so powerful, Lord, convicting of sin, holiness, touches of pure joy and love as we gather literally in your presence, not just gather for a service and a little teaching, but actually gather in your presence. Father, that's what our goal is here at Southland. And I pray that you would bring us there. In your name we pray. Amen.